The sermon text this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Uh, so what are your plans uh, this year? M most of us, not all of us, but many of us make plans, resolutions, what we're going to be doing. It's kind of traditional what we do at the beginning of the New Year's. We think ahead. I mean, it, it seems right. It seems right to kind of organize ourselves around, hey, we're going to change our life in terms of how we're handling health or money or time. Uh, many of us want a new start. We want things to be new. So many of us make these resolutions. But, uh, but when you think about these resolutions, you know, starting them and uh, finishing them are something kind of altogether different. Uh, on average, or at least the majority of people who make resolutions uh, for this year, um, yeah, it, within 32 days, most of the people flatline back to normal. That's not to discourage you. It's just, uh, it's just to address the reality that many of our resolutions, are we're not committed to them. We're not thinking, I need to start well and finish well. And, you know, when you think about, um, it really speaks to a, a missed truth about Christianity, is that Christianity really is about persevering. It's about finishing well. It's about sticking to it. Eugene Peterson, an author who died a few years back, he wrote a book called uh, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That was kind of his definition of Christianity, a long obedience in the same direction. So we're really talking about here. You know, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he's this young pastor, really outgunned. It's a sophisticated church in Ephesus. It's a cosmopolitan church. He's timid. He's often given to ill health. And he's kind of feeling overwhelmed. And Paul, as the senior kind of mentor in his life, is saying, finish the job. Persevere. Stick to it. And he's, he's encouraging him. He's calling him to resolve himself to do this task well. And so he gives these instructions, or let's just call them resolutions, really. These resolutions to help him finish well. But, but, but I, what I love about Paul is, you know, there's all these imperatives, these commands in the Scripture. But he gives us this encouragement. It's, it's like a seasoned father knows you know, you can call to action, but you need to encourage as well. And so what he does is he gives three instructions, three resolutions to Timothy, and really to all of us. While his context was pastoring, our context as Christians is still to finish well. 
Uh, but then he gives these two encouragements at the end. So let's look first at these charges or resolutions. Here's how we'll finish well. And then he'll give us the fuel to do that. So the first one is obviously to pursue holiness and ethical purity. In other words, for you and I to persevere well, for us to keep our edge to the end, we need to be actively pursuing this righteousness. Look with me at verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Notice how he begins with the contrast, but you, O man of God. So immediately he kind of draws our minds back to making comparison. Timothy, don't be like these people in chapter 6 before this section. So in the first 10 verses, he speaks about these false teachers. They're marked by divisiveness and love of controversy, love of money, um, arrogance, pride. He says, but as for you, don't be like them. In other words, and he doesn't even refer to Timothy by his name. He calls him, O man of God. This is a title of honor. It's a title given to Moses, to Daniel, a title given to David, uh, to Samuel, to Elijah. Uh, so this is, a, he's calling him, you're different. You're of God. You're to live differently. And he instructs him by saying, flee these things and pursue these things. Now, it's really a negative positive. Lay aside these things, pick up these things. Put these things off, put these things on. In older English, it would be mortify and vivify. You know, kill these things and give life to these things. So, so, so Paul's telling Timothy, if you want to persevere, you've got to be in the business of fleeing these things. He doesn't tell us what they are. Again, we find him in the first half of chapter 6. Flee these things of arrogance, divisiveness, those kind of markers and characteristics of people who don't see God as interacting in life very directly. It says flee these things. Now, we live in a pragmatic age. You want to hear about what are the five steps to flee these things. He said, Jesus says, run, just run, just go. I mean, treat them as you would a physical danger. If a physical danger comes out, you don't think, what should I do to leave? You just leave. And so he's simply saying, just run. But we don't just run aimlessly. You don't just, we don't create a vacuum to be filled in with other things that aren't helpful. He says, pursue these things. You know, engage righteousness and godliness. Engage faith and love and, and, and steadfastness and gentleness. In other words, the, imp the implication is this is an active thing. These are active words, fleeing and pursuing. There's an intentionality towards our pursuing holiness. You will not be holy this year by accident. It's not going to happen. Ha holiness doesn't just happen. There's a pursuit to it. And that's what he's telling Timothy. That it really reminds us that, that our spiritual development, our pursuit of righteousness, it's going to involve you and me and us together. Uh, so, so he's calling us to two things. So if we're going to persevere, if we're going to finish well, there's going to be this active fleeing. So it begins with you. What do you need to lay aside? What are the things that would mark or be destructive to you? If you were to see physical danger, you'd flee kind of almost reflexively. If you see spiritual danger, so what are the vices that if he were writing to you, you'd have to flee? Would it be materialism, anger, unforgiveness, lust, bitterness? What would it be? Envy? What are those things? You know, it's, when I ask you the question, 
do answers come right to your mind? Because for many of us, it's difficult to see these things that we ought to flee. We struggle with seeing. No, we can see with laser accuracy what other people need to flee. So oftentimes, if you've ever heard a sermon and you think, you know, so-and-so needs to hear this. You're seeing their sins clearly. You're helping them identify, hey, these are the things you need. They really need to hear this. But do you ever say that about yourself? Are you able to see what's really kind of on your face? I worked as a waiter for a number of years in a restaurant and um, going through college, and I had a mustache. It was kind of a Tom Selleck mustache, if you must know. And um, you can Google that if you're too young to know what that is. But uh, I didn't realize that I had a piece of tomato from lunch in my mustache for about three hours while I was working. People were smiling at me, waving. They were having the best time looking at me. And I'm thinking, I must really be on today. And it was, I looked in the mirror finally, and there's tomato right there. And nobody told me. I mean, I didn't see it. it. There it was on me, but I didn't see it. You know, Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan, the reason I always bring these dead guys in 400 years plus is because I want you to see the truth is the same. We aren't changing from generation. We don't, we don't become better just by virtue of generation passing generation. So Richard Sibbs lived in the 16th century, and he said these words. He says, to take the soul to task is the way of life, but we resist the light about ourselves. To deal roundly with yourself is the hard way, the narrow way, but the good way. We have trouble looking at our own lives and saying, what ought we to be fleeing this year? What are the things that are distracting us, that are keeping us from just, we're just like the hamster on the wheel. We're running, we're running hard, but we're going nowhere. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, would look at his life on a regular basis around these four spheres. He'd look at himself in relationship to God, relationship to his family, his marriage, relationship to his community, the church, and his relationship to the world. And, and he would regularly review, how am I living? How am I thinking? How am I behaving uh, before each of these spheres? And, and he would take his own soul to task. And it would lead to identification of, wow, I shouldn't have said this to that person. I shouldn't have thought this. And I shouldn't have really ground down on that character of that person by saying this to so-and-so. And he would review his life, which would lead to repentance and maybe restitution, but at least repentance of his own sin. And then he would flee to the cross where we are offered forgiveness through faith. And you'd find refreshment and forgiveness there. And that's what he would do. Is that something you could do this year? To regularly begin looking at your life, taking your soul to task, as Dr. Sibbs instructs us, to take in at the task and to say, how have I behaved with God? Start with behavior. I know there's motivations underneath of it. Behaviors are like the buoy and they lead right to the behavior, right to the motivation. So how am I living before my wife and my spouse or my friends or my church community or my workplace? It's a good place to start. If you need help, then ask a trusted friend. What am I not seeing? What, what is it about me that you see that I need to be fleeing? You've got to brace yourself if you ask a friend. I, I did ask Carol, and um, she said, how much time do you have? I said, not as much as you may want. 
But we have to ask. We can't see it. It's the tomato in your mustache. I mean, you just can't identify it. We need help. So we need to flee these things. In fact, John Calvin says that Christianity is a lifelong race with repentance. We're just coming to God to repent. Thank him for the gift. But not just fleeing things, we're called to pursue things. He says, pursue righteousness. That is a right living. Then I'm rightly dealing with people. I'm walking with integrity. I'm walking with truth. I'm walking with kindness. I'm rightly relating to people in my life. But not just righteousness, godliness. Godliness isn't some you know, kind of ivory tower life. Godliness is just making decisions with regard to God. That's all the word means. So in other words, I take my horizontal decisions and I verticalize it. What would God have me do? How should I decide this within relationship to God? That's all godliness is. Faith. Faith is just trusting in the promises of God when you're put in a position of difficulty and your tendency is to go with the machinery of man or, or what can you do? And it's trusting God for his mercy and help. As right as even pray, every morning, God, I need your mercy and grace. Uh, love. What is love? He says, pursue love. That means to pursue what is good for another person. You know, how would loving my neighbor look like in this context? What does legitimate sacrifice look like for this person? That we have to pursue this. You're not going to bump into it. You have to think it. Or steadfastness. It's an endurance in the face of difficulties. I'm going to persevere on. Or gentleness. I'm going to give a general answer to this harsh attitude or harsh response or harsh word. Remember now, these things, we're not going to, the goal is not perfection here. The goal is perseverance. In Proverbs 24, 16, just a a couple days ago, I was in my reading plan, I read this. And this is how, when we read the Bible, we're constantly being brought before the Lord and helped and instructed. I read this verse in 24, 16. It says, the, the righteous falls seven times, but rises again. That's really who we are. We will fail. We will fall time and time. And seven, it wasn't like it was six or eight. No, seven's kind of a number. for They will completely keep falling, but they keep rising. That's what it is about us. The Christian keeps rising. But this is hard. Listen, we're an instantaneous generation. We want it right now. And if we don't get it, if we fall off our reading plan, I bag the whole thing. I can't do it. We don't, we don't want to persevere. Eugene Peterson in this book continues on and he says, it is not difficult in our world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult, though, to sustain the interest. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. So I'm asking you this year, one resolution is I'm going to pursue righteousness. I'm going to pursue these things. I'm going to try to lay aside certain things. I'm going to try talk to someone about that, a member of this church. Uh, what will it look like in your life? Remember, the righteous will fall time and time again, but they keep rising. That's what we're called to do, to persevere. Secondly, uh, to grow in the faith. 
That's the second resolution Paul gives Timothy. Look with me at verse 12, just the beginning of it. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. You notice this kind of warfare imagery is continuing on. There's fleeing and pursuing. You see it on the battlefield. Boy, then you see this idea of fighting the good fight of the faith. Now, uh, when Paul was telling Timothy this, of course, he was a pastor. And he's, you notice it says, fight the good fight of the faith. So there's an article before faith which usually inclines us to believe that what he's really speaking about here is fight for the apostolic faith, the, the doctrine of the apostles, the teachings of Jesus that was handed around. Fight for that. Defend it. You're a pastor. Guard the church. Promote good doctrine. Defend against false doctrine. Uh, but it really applies to all of us because we all have our contexts where we're the Christian in the room, and there is a call for us to fight the good fight of the faith. That, you know, Peter says to all Christians, be prepared to make a defense of the hope that is within you. So all of us have that responsibility. In other words, what I'm saying is, don't be surprised when you find the faith attacked in your world, whether it be the workplace, the university, the government, or some other context. Don't be surprised. Every generation has known that the, it's a fight. It's a fight. It's a good fight for the faith that we're, we're called to be prepared to give a defense of the hope that's within us, that we're called to fight. Now, we do it graciously. We do it charitably. I, I would encourage you, don't do it on social media. You know, the, the attacks and the back and forth on social, it rarely produces anything other than higher temperatures of anger and bitterness. All I mean to say is, let's not be surprised. We've kind of fallen into this false notion, this triumphalism, that no, the faith should have a place at the table of government and culture and life. Really? I, I mean, most generations have not known that. And, and most people now who call upon Christ as their king are the minority. And they're growing. And they're thriving. So we don't need the place of strength to make a defense of the hope that's within us. So, so we're called to fight, but I think there's something else going on. When Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, I do think it's not just a public fight. I think there is a private fight. I think you and I have a private fight to keep believing. I think there's a fight in this world to keep trusting in God. It's a fight against disbelief, discouragement, discontentedness, disillusionment. When you lose your job, as, as Ray prayed, this dear family in our church, prayer goes out to pray for this young child. And within an hour, the child's life is lost. They're going to have to fight for faith. You know, is God good and sovereign? Yes, he is. We read that, right? The blessed and only sovereign. It's right there in the text. To be blessed means to be happy, good. He's the good and sovereign, and yet this baby just died. They're going to have to fight. We have to fight for faith. There's much in this world that will challenge this year. Come in, you don't know what's coming up to you this year. You have no idea. As I say, you know, we're only one phone call away from life just going that way. And we have to, that's what he's saying. To persevere... It's a hand-to-hand it's -hand combat. It's strenuous. It's not an easy, but it's a good fight 
He says it's a good fight. It's a good fight because not just the reward. You think of Olympian, you think fighting through the training because the gold's so good. The reward is Christ, the one who's laid down his life for us. Christ is mine forevermore, we say. That's the reward. Think about, behold, that he is our inheritance. Be thou my vision. He's our inheritance. Paul gave word to it. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison, languishing. He's going to be imminently dying. And here's what he writes. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? You know, we're called to make really efforts to grow in the faith, both to defend the faith publicly, but to grow in our faith, to grow in our understanding. So when the fight comes, we're ready. That's why we encourage Bible reading plans and beginning to maybe reform your patterns of prayer that started out well but have fallen off. To intend to engage in a small group, a care group, or, or in fellowship with the church. Now listen, we don't give you this to create a bunch of legalistic followers. The, the way to defeat legalism is to recognize that you doing these disciplines, they don't cause God to love you anymore. I mean, no more than when a child cleans his room. A parent may be thankful that they're cleaning the room, but it doesn't cause the child to be in greater favor with it. We love our children because they're our children. And God loves us because we're his children in faith. And so, of course, now every kid's going to go home and say, I don't have to clean my room. I don't want to be a legalist, Mom. But, but it helps us to know God and to love God. It helps us to follow him. And, and that's what we're calling. And we need help to fight the faith. So if you see yourself this year, and you end at the year, really no different than you started the year, well, then it's just the definition of insanity to think that it's going to change next year if you don't make some changes. God has given us these means of, of grace that we can walk in them. We can exercise them, and that's how they grow. John Newton, he wrote a book. It's a collect. He didn't write the book. He wrote letters to people in his pastorate. And uh, when he died, his letters were collected, and they were put together in a book, Letters of John Newton. He was an English pastor in the, about a couple hundred years ago. And he said this, remember the growth of the believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly, indeed, but surely. Many suns and showers and frosts pass upon it before it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it looks dead, it's gathering strength at the root. Be humble, watchful, diligent in the means. Diligent in the means. When he says means, the ways of growing in our knowledge and love for God. And endeavor to look through it all and to fix your eye upon Jesus and all shall be well. All shall be well. Uh, so, but we don't do this alone, right? Pilgrims travel together, so we have to fight the good fight of the faith together. Together. Paul writes to the Philippian church, again, another prison letter. He says to the church, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We have to work together. Who are you going to, who is side by side with you? Who is going to help you fight the good fight of the faith? When you hit trouble and travail and difficulty, will you allow people? I, I know that most of us, we want to be heard. We want our pain to be understood. I understand that. 
But at one point, we have to give a word of encouragement to fight the good fight of faith. Please don't hear that as spiritualizing. You don't hear that like, have you heard the pain I've been going through? We do need to do both. We need to listen, but there's a, a place to both give and receive. This year, will you be able to give? Will you be able to fight with someone else who's struggling? Can you help, like, like the four friends that carry the paralytic? Can you just be a friend that way? But you might be on the receiving end. And can you then receive it without thinking, oh, they're over-spiritualizing my friend? No, they're just helping you fight the good fight for the faith. So that's the second thing, to persevere. We fight this good fight. And then third, and this is really a, a beautiful one, I think, it's to develop deeper affections for God. Develop deeper affections for God. Look with me at 12 again. In 12 he says, Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now this, this ought to, when you read it, you kind of are like, what's going on? To take hold of eternal life to which you've been called. Uh, to take hold, that Greek word means to grasp firmly, almost violently to get a hold of it and hold on to it. So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you've got to take hold of eternal life. Now, that seems strange thing to take hold of. I mean, we think of eternal life as you only get it when you die. And when you die, you get it, and then you're all in good shape. But he's saying, no, in the present world, take hold of eternal life. Now, he says, to which you were called. So God does the calling to eternal life, right? We don't call out to God to get saved. He calls out to... He calls out to us first, right? Jesus said, no, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So the Father's drawing by the Spirit. He's calling us to himself. And what he's saying to Timothy is, hey, God called you, and you even gave good confession of it. You even gave testimony to it. You even spoke before many witnesses how you were called. And Paul's saying, now I want you to take hold of it. Why would he say that to Timothy the pastor? Shouldn't he already have hold of it? Well, I think his grip, I'd submit this to you. I think his grip was loosening. I don't think he was taking hold of it. Otherwise, why would Paul have said it? Paul's saying, grab it. You know, Timothy's timid. He's weak. He's sickly. He's over his head in pastoral ministry. He doesn't think he's going to make it. And, and, and he's thinking about salvation only as something future and not something present. And so he's saying, take, because it is strange. Take hold of eternal life. I haven't died yet. No, for the Christian, you're in eternal life right now. Do you realize that? Our eternal life is not a future gift alone. It's a present reality. It's a present gift to us. So think about this. We live in a present evil age, right? We see that. Kids are dying. Trouble's upon us, no doubt about it. We live in a present evil age. When Christ came, he inaugurated a new age in himself through his resurrection. We call the theologians call this the overlapping of the ages, the now and the not yet. We are now saved. We're now in eternal life because we'll never be separated from God. Life nor death, the two big deals right there, life nor death, angels nor demons, things present, things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else, and all creation, everything out there, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So this is the overlapping of the ages. We have it now, but we don't have it yet fully. That's the now and the not yet. And so he's saying, Timothy, wake up. You are forever related to God. So you can persevere. There's no doubt you can persevere. To what degree have you grasped eternal life? 
How, how tight is your grip on living in the reality right now that you will never see a day apart from God loving you? To what degree has that gripped you? Because what this passage warns us is you can possess something and not enjoy it. It's like you can have something incredibly rich in your home and, and, and just worthy and super, and you never know it. That's what I think we do with the faith. And we have this incredible, you know, it's like the old day. It's like we look at salvation as one of the insurance policies. Now, back in the day, we didn't have fireproof, you know, um, safes and we didn't have all the cloud we had safe deposit boxes at the bank and so if you needed something protected you put it in the bank and you kept it there and we look at salvation as almost like a insurance policy that's held at the bank in case we die and then somebody can get it and get the he's saying take hold of it now to what degree do you have hold of it you know, how do, and you may be saying, I don't have hold of it right now. My, my, my grasp isn't firm. Well, let me encourage you. How do we do this? How do we grasp the eternal life now? Well, first we begin to ponder Christ. We think about his cross. We think about that the God-man has come to, to take upon himself all of our sins, to reconcile us to God. This is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to follow a set of rules. It means to follow a certain Savior that has come from heaven. A lot of saviors have come. Only one has died and raised, and that's the one that we follow by faith. And this is what it means to become a Christian. It's not simply a cognitive acceptance of a certain set of truths. It is that, but it's more. It's following that one that came. And so we ponder him. But we ponder what he's given to us. We ponder our forgiveness. We look back at the year, and you, some of the last year, you want to leave behind like it's, yeah, like it's a corpse. But you know it's been forgiven. It won't be brought up. You won't stand in judgment for the believer. You will not face God on account of that. Christ has said it's finished. So we ponder that. We ponder heaven. We ponder what's it going to be like to see God. I mean, do you ever give, do you ever give thought to that? Ponder what it will be like. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said it's essential for you to think about heaven. It's, a th it's essential for you to carve out time in your day to think about heaven. Here's, here's what he said. Labor to be much acquainted with heaven. If you're not acquainted with it, you will not be likely to spend your life as a journey there. You will not be sensible of its worth and nor will you long for it, unless you're much conversant in your mind with a better good. It will be exceedingly difficult for you to have your hearts loose from these things of the world, and to be ready to part with them for the sake of that better good. Labor, therefore, to obtain a realizing sense of a heavenly world, to get a, a firm grip or belief of its reality, and to be very much conversant with it in your thoughts. It means we need to think about it. So what do you need to lay aside? That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, lay aside every encumbrance, every encumbrance and, 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 and uh, run with endurance. He says, and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So, so grasping eternal life, what is distracting you from from living in that? What good things 
in your life now are so nice and pretty and shiny that they take all of your time of thought and mind and effort. What, what do you need to lay aside? What do you need to, to take and maybe love a little less so that there might be shelf space for this greater topic of becoming conversant with heaven? Because it really matters for us to persevere. If you want to finish well. So he says three resolutions. Pursue holiness, fight the good fight of the faith, and then grasp eternal life. These are the three. Now, I know that most of you are hearing me and you understand me. And I also know that you're going to walk out that door and it's going to go right out your ears because things are going to just jump right on you as soon as you leave this gathered community of faith and you get hit with children or bills or responsibilities and all of a sudden the vertical's gone and it's all, we're going back all horizontal. And that's why Paul gave us these encouragements. Now, what can I say to you to keep you in the game all year? What can I say to you? Well, I'm going to say to you what he said. Look with me at 13 to 16. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion forever. Okay, this is, Paul is an incredible mentor right now. He's saying to Timothy, he's saying, listen, I charge you, I'm charging you, and that's what I'm doing with you, I'm charging you in the presence of God, who gives life to all living things, he gives life to all things, to keep the commandment. Did you see that? To keep the commandment. What is that commandment? It's a singular thing. Well, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, it could be really a sum, uh, probably a summation of everything that he's been telling him throughout the whole letter. In other words, to be faithful as a steward of the gospel, to be committed to Christ, uh, to persevere well. I think that's what he's saying, kind of a, a summation of what I've just taken a few minutes to explain. But notice what he does. He says, I charge you to keep the commandment, but he gives him two reasons. He says, number one, until the appearing of Christ Jesus. He's not saying, hey, there's a time marker. You only have to do it till he returns. I don't think he's doing it that way. I think he's motivating us with this idea that Christ will come back in glory and power. And that's to kind of that future reality. He's not date setting. He's not saying, here's when the stars line up, it's going to happen. He doesn't know it's time, but he knows it's event. You can be uncertain to its timing, but not uncertain to its reality. And so he knows he's coming back. He says, live in light of that day. When you think about that day and you give thought to the return of Christ, we study this in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. That day he will come in the clouds and he will bring deliverance to his people and he will bring judgment to those who oppose him. It is going to be a great day. Hey, the weak are going to be made strong. Those mourning are going to be rejoicing. The broken are going to be mended. Those who suffered loss will have all things restored. Evil will be undone. Wrongs will be righted. Justice will be served. As you prayed, no babies will die. The sea will be no more in Revelation, which means there'll be no more sin. Can you imagine that day? That day is to fuel and motivate my behavior today. But not just 
a look ahead. We do want to do that. But notice what he says about God, because God's a present reality right now. He gives life to all things, all living things. That means right now. So first, you have the return of Christ. Secondly, you have the glorious God. This God gives life to you. Do you recognize, if you just begin to ponder this idea, that I'm breathing and my heart is pounding right now because God is giving life to me. Do you see how it brings in this divine dimension? It transforms the way you look at life. That, that he is giving life to you and me right now. God, you're not telling your heart to beat. You're not causing your brain to fire off the commands to get the heart to beat, to pump the blood, to keep you. God has given life to all things. He's a sovereign God. Look at it. He's the blessed, the good one, the only sovereign. He's the only sovereign. He rules all the nations. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that means that he rules all creation. He rules demonic, angelic, human. Every institution, every rule, every governance, he stands over them all. He's sovereign. Cancer is not sovereign. COVID's not sovereign. The government's not sovereign. There's nothing in this world that will threaten you under his watchful eye. That we can persevere because of him, but not just his sovereignty. Look at his uniqueness. He alone has immortality. He, in other words, death is no threat to him. He's a threat to death. God cannot die. He alone is self-existence. You know, his immortality is a deathlessness. He cannot die. That's why he'll always be the king on top of the hill. All of us will die. He won't die. He can't die. He'll never die. Not only that, but he's totally other. He alone dwells in unapproachable light. He's inaccessible. No one has seen him, nor can see him. He is unseeable. He's totally other. He's not the best human times a bazillion. It's a different order. It's a different order. It's not even jets to spacecraft. It's a different order altogether. This is the God who is sovereign in our lives. We can persevere. So, so what's coming to us this year? Well, you and I both know we're going to be burying people. We're going to be struggling with people. There's going to be job loss. There's going to be family dynamics that are troubling. There's going to be marital conflict. we have relational struggles. We're going to have those things. And we're also going to have the grace of God every morning. We're going to have a lot of good things this year, too, I trust, by God's grace. But what we find here is that this God is able to help us persevere through all those things. You know, a lot of people want to come up to you when you're in struggle, and they want to encourage you and say something like, you know what, God won't give you more than you can handle. And you just want to say, oh, yes, he can, and he will. Why does he do that? Why does he give us more than we think we can handle? Because he's driving us away from self-sufficiency to himself for grace so that we would find in him a strong tower, a refuge, a fortress, an ever-present help in times of trouble so that we would see him as he really is. So one problem with New Year's resolutions, they breed almost a self-sufficient, self-improvement idea. No, we're to be driven to God through these challenges. To find his mercies sure and certain in Christ. And this is really what leads us to the celebration of the table today. You know, if God is, if he dwells in unapproachable light, 
and if he is unseeable, then how can we know this God? That's the glory of Christmas and the incarnation. Christ has come to reveal this unapproachable, this inaccessible, and this unseeable God. But when, and we know this because the Gospel of John chapter 1 reveals to us that Jesus has come to this very thing. So in John 1, 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here Jesus existed, the Word of God. But then we find in verse 14 that the Word of God became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He took on flesh like us. In fact, it says that we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Christ has come from God as God, now clothing His divinity with humanity. And why has He done it? Well, He tells us in verse 18, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So John is saying that Jesus is God, who is at the Father's side, now he has come to make him known. Make him known. Now, how, is he, how has he made himself known? Well, of course, through his teaching, but primarily, he's come to make God known through the table, through the cross. The wisdom of God is displayed through the cross. In, in, in the breaking of the bread, in the shedding of the blood for the cup, you see an incredible holiness of God that we cannot even fathom. Sins requiring the death of his own son, and yet you see this incredible mercy and faithfulness and covenantal love from God, that, that he would provide a means of salvation for those who come to him by faith. It's, it, it is incredible. It, God is bidding us. You know, how do we persevere? We celebrate the table every month just to keep encouraging you. Bring your repeated failures. Bring your sin. Bring your brokenness. Bring all the things that kind of cause you to feel distant from God, bring them to this table and dump them here and eat the bread and drink the cup and recognize he is forever a father to those who have come to him by faith. He's forever a father to us. He cannot disown his own. He's forever a father. And every month you're given that encouragement. Persevere. The righteous, they fall down seven times, but they keep rising. That's what we're going to do this year. As we fall down, we're going to help each other get up. We're, going to just get, we're pilgrims. We're just going to keep moving. So as the bread is broken and the, and the, and the cup is shared, that recognize that's God's confirmation. Of, I am holy and totally other, and yet I love you, and I'm saving you and my own son. Let's take a minute now and just ask God to cause these truths to be like concrete, like steel in our minds, that we would understand them and live in light of them. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.